On today's show, we've got Gary Wilson. Gary started off his career in the Victorian Police Force as part of the Special Operations Group. And during his time, he kicked his fair share of doors and he locked up a bunch of bad people for us. So thanks for doing that for us, Gaz, and keeping us all safe, mate. These days, Gary is into crypto and he's here to share what he knows about this incredible opportunity, how he approaches it and what he gets out of it. Gary's energy and his compulsion for fun are infectious. And by the end of today's interview, you're going to leave feeling energized and excited about what the future holds. Let's get started. G'day, Gary. Welcome to the show, mate. Thanks for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Rob. Glad to be here, mate. What's new in your world of lockdowns in Victoria? It's like living in North Korea. Is everything okay? Well, well, the funny thing is when you were talking about the background then about the kicking down the doors, I mean, I'm definitely not doing that these days. <laughs> so now it's um, family and it's uh, nice riding through the parks and listening to birds whistling. But look, lockdown in this area for a lot of businesses and a lot of people have done it tough. But um, I- I'm enjoying it actually because it's time with people you want to do. You re-address your values, um, what it is that, you know, you want to do rather than have to do. So I'm, I'm using it as that, but it's, it's very interesting here at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've taken the time to reassess my business and whatnot as well, but I've also been really lucky to reconnect with my missus. And, you know, she she's working for the for home from home as well. And the photography business has been completely decimated because of lockdown and just yeah. what's happened in the last 18 months. But that's life, right? That can you don't need a lockdown to have a business go sideways on you or for something to go wrong. So you just got to deal with those things as they come at you. But it is coming back to life a little bit. I, I noticed there's a light at the end of the tunnel here in New South Wales in the last couple of days and the phone started ringing again and the emails have been coming. So there's a little bit of inquiry and all things being equal, we'll get some more going. But to your point, I've, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on what matters to me and doing the things that I should have been doing and spending time with the people that I really do care about, which has just been incredibly nice. Have you been able to do that? Have you and your missus reconnected or are oh, you, mate, are you look, on the verge of a divorce? No, no, mate. My wife gets up singing every day at the moment. So Beautiful. she still was doing it before COVID. Yeah. She just loves the fact that the kids are around and, and I'm around more. And she just loves cooking meals and going out and spending time and sitting there having cups of tea <laughs> and chatting about life and where we're going and what we're doing. And, um, you know, there's a bit of a spring in the step, but you're right, I've reconnected because because I'm home a lot. Um, mostly we're, what, we're worldwide number one now in numbers of lockdown days yeah. uh, ever. So you, you have to sort of get on, but no, I've, I've really re- reconnected and we're having a lot of fun. Well, that's awesome, man. I'm, I'm glad that you're making lemonade out of those lemons that we've all been dealt. It just is what it is. I know there's plenty of people out there that are doing it pretty tough. Would you have a message for those someone that's doing it a bit tough if they were watching you and me going, oh, that's all right for you blokes, you work from home and you know, you're making money doing what you do. But for me, it's not the same. Would you have a message to maybe give someone a little bit of hope and a bit more energy? Yeah, look, I think what they've got to do is look at it and say, look, this is this is going to happen and, and, and you can't change what the decisions are making out there, even though people are going out and doing demonstrations or you could be, it could be on your mind and you're reading the news and, you know, on the, on the papers or watching it and doing everything that's about it. I just find that the best thing to do is 
you know, turn off, switch off the news, you know, stop reading the newspaper, get out and, and, and read some inspiring books or autobiographies, you know, chat to the missus or the partner that you've got, you know, reconnect with the kids or just go out there and just look, you know, one of the things you do is if you do go for a bit of a ride or a run or a walk around the park and just, just watching nature and reconnecting on, on whether it's rainy days or nice days, you know, it's amazing how your mind gets really at peace. So I always say, look, the government can control all the things, but they can't control my mind. Yeah, I love it. It sounds what about, like. What about yourself? Have you got something similar, Rob? Well, you sound like the the old school door kickers become like a bit of a chilled out hippie. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I had to reinvent myself. Don't worry. You literally had to. Cra- I was a bit of a crazy. <laughs> uh, same, same for me. I'm lucky where I live. I'm right by the beach, right? It's sort of like a, a five minute walk away from where I am. So every morning I, I go for my morning walk. It's probably about an eight or nine kilometer round trip for me. And at the turnaround point, I kind of sit down on the beach and I, uh, kind of ground myself. I earth myself down there and I mm. generally take out whatever is in my ears. I take it out and I try and just immerse myself around all the noise that's there. You know, sometimes a surf is just pumping in there and it's really kind of cool just to watch and listen to that. Um, and every now and then I do a, maybe a guided meditation down there with some headphones in my ears. Although I haven't been able to do that as much as what I thought I would, because where I am is all the people walking their dogs, and sometimes I'm sitting there with my legs crossed and with my, my fingers on my knees <laughs> meditating. And then there's like, like a dog a licking smoke. the side of my neck. Like, what, what is that? It's a dog licking my, what the hell? I'm trying, I've got things to do over here, puppy. Um, so that's kind of nice. But yeah, you know, the same as, same as you guys. I've tried to make the most out of the circumstance and the situation. And I've really taken that time to reconnect with myself, with my partner, my family, and certainly with nature as well. I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of months spearfishing. Um, wintertime here in, in Sydney is beautiful for that. So, you know, get in the water and the world's best wetsuit lets me stay in the water for two or three hours at a time. And sometimes I get out and don't catch a thing and just swimming around and just being in nature like that is kind of enough. And there's all sorts of things that I, I see around uh, where I go spearfishing is really cool. There's lots of sharks, lots of really big fish. And um, I saw, a, unfortunately, I saw a dead baby humpback whale the other day of all mm. things. Yeah, that was pretty uncool. It had been washed up and um, it was wedged under all of these rocks. It's probably about twice the size of me. So I'm about six foot tall. So it was relatively big, but I thought all of a sudden, all of these like visuals in my mind of like great white sharks eating dead whales are like that. And I'm like, you know what? Something doesn't feel right. I'm actually, nature's it's all good today. I'm getting out. I got out of the water, right? So, yeah, it's yeah, kind mate, of cool. but it's pretty. But um, where you're living, mate, it sounds pretty cool. I mean, just even to experience that. Yeah. I mean, you asked me before about what advice I would have out there through all this time. What what advice would you have, Rob? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? And it's something that I thought about as well. One one thing that you can do if you're having a bit of a hard time out there is if you focus on other people and how you can help other people. Because if you, if you wanted to swap problems with me today, you'd keep your problems straight away. You don't want the problems that I've got. And I definitely don't <laughs> want the problems that you have. And it's all a matter of perspective, right? So sometimes if you look outside of yourself and ask around if people are doing okay and how can you help, that really can take your mind off the issues that you're facing and not as a distraction, mm-hmm. but as something that you can do to actually help somebody because it feels good to help other people and 
you know, that's one really simple thing that you can do, I think, to just to reach out and, and help someone else and see if your mates need a hand. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, I remember um, just going on what you just said. Somebody said to me, look, if you had 10 people in a room in a circle and there was a hat in the middle and you wrote down your problems and they all wrote down theirs and everybody folded it up and put it in the hat, would you take somebody else's out and not your own or would you take your own problems out? And everybody answered, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the person across me, they could they could be uh, having a life-threatening disease or something or but maybe my problems aren't too bad. So you'd, you'd end up taking your own one out. I mean, I don't know. What would you do? Would you take your own? 100%, man. I have absolutely nothing to complain about. You know, I can, I can whinge and bleat all I want about the government and the socialist idiots that are running this place, but it really hmm. – actually makes no difference to me. All the lockdowns in the world don't matter to me because as you rightly pointed out, man, you can't control my mind and everything is just perspective. Everything is a matter of perspective. And if you have a good approach to things and you look at the positive in things and you do your best and your utmost to help people, then you'll have a good experience. So, you know, it goes to the very heart of that old old saying is just focus on the things you can control and don't mm. worry about the things you can't control because there's nothing you can do about it at all. You know, bad stuff happens to good people all the time and you can't rid the world of things you don't like and you can't bury your head in the sand either. But just know that bad things are there particularly mm. with society and, and the social circumstance that we're all facing, but you don't have to let that affect you. Just move forward and push through that. So I think that's a, an important conversation to have. And I really appreciate you sharing your views there, Gaz. Let's move on, mate. Let's find out a little bit more about you as a, as a police officer. Did you join as a young man or did you join a little bit later in life? I joined, I joined a little bit later. Um, first of all, when I got out of school, I, I worked in the government department and, basically did data control, which is the, you know, lap, we got laptops and computers and things now. This is how far back, back it goes. But the whole building was um, a computer where you just did all these sheets and it was as boring as hell. So um, I just couldn't wait to get out of there. And um, I joined it in my uh, in my 20s at the police force, sort of getting towards the mid to late 20s. And I, I joined... Basically, um, because I thought it'd be a an exciting life. Every day is different when you get up. You know, it'd be a cool job to be. But I wanted to get into the SAG right from the start because I saw a guy one day walking in the city and he had black overalls on, black cap. He had his um, guns like a gunslinger beside him with the army boots, and mm-hmm. I thought it might have been army. And I, I walked up to him and I said, "Look, mate, who are you and what do you what do you do?" And he says, oh, "I'm in the special operations group. I'm." I'm in the Victorian Police Force. You get in first, and that's how you get in there. And I said, "Well, look, you know, what do you need to do?" And he, he told me what he did. And I thought, right, I just visualised that that's what I wanted to do. So I had to then join. But it took a couple of years to join. By the time you went through all the entrance exams and the physical, and you know, at that time there wasn't any much money for for police to to fund. But mm. you know, I had to wait a bit. So you know, that was one of the things. But once I got in there, I loved it. I I, I got in. Just did about 18 months to two, 20 months just in general duties. Um, you know, a couple of the police stations down here at Broadmeadows and, and at Epping and at Brunswick, which was, uh, Brunswick was really flat out busy. And then the first opportunity I could, I applied for the Special Operations Group. Uh, I think a few hundred applied. Uh, and then in the end, you do all your pre-course stuff. And 
some of the things are like hell on earth, but that's that's <laughs> the way it was. And then you did a, a three-month um, entrance to get in there. So luckily, uh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done, more than all my martial arts and black belts and karate and second down black belts here and there. Um, one of those gradings was like a typical morning on one day of, of, of the time. <laughs> so, you know, but but look, once I got in, I loved it, you know. Mm-hmm. was in the bomb squad as well um, at the same time as the, you know, active special operations group. And, mate, from then on, it was just exciting. It was uh, everything was every day I loved it. Yeah, that's what, that's that's it's unusual that you can get a job in this world where you love every moment of it i've been blessed as well i've had a couple yeah. of those jobs and both in the military right i loved everything so i was going to ask you what was your background yeah you're, we're very similar what's yours yeah it's a, it's same sort of stuff same same different right you're just a just a different colored uniform really um it's mm. still a government job and um my early career in the navy was just a huge amount of fun because you're playing uh, I was a combat systems operator, right? So radar, sonar, electronic warfare. You're playing the same sort of video game day in, day out, but you play mm. it with big, expensive toys. Mm. And <laughs> you uh, love that, mate. Yeah, man, that's <laughs> like really, really, really good fun. One of my one of my favorite things to that we used to do was um, used to hold a position in the ops room called the action picture supervisor, and you'd stand next to the principal warfare officer and you would help him on an anti-submarine exercise. And depending on who the skipper of your ship was, depends on who's in charge. Mm. And we had a senior captain at, at the time, and he would be in charge of the surface action group that we had. And we'd be on these exercises and these poor old warfare officers coming straight out of training, they'd be like, you know, I've been there for a couple of years and they'd be covering their hand and whispering and saying, where do you think the submarine is? And I'm like, I don't know, man, you're the warfare officer. Where do you think it is? <laughs> Only the submarine knows where it is. And you'd have the ships and you'd have the, P3 maritime patrol aircraft out there and you have the Seahawks out there looking for the thing and you just be playing a big game of chess against a submarine, which was just really a waste of time because the submarine would just come up behind you and sink all five or six ships in about 10 minutes um, mm. and they were there the whole time and we were looking in the wrong place. I don't think we ever found a submarine proper. Um, so they are the absolute apex predators of naval combat warfare and even the old school diesel stuff that we have these days is still incredibly um, exciting to work with. And, mm. you know, we've just announced recently that we're getting nuclear submarines. So that'll be something pretty special altogether. If ever that happens in the next 20 years, who knows? Um, but yeah, it's a, a, yeah, a I really I fun the French game. Went, yeah, the French went scurrying back in there because we had our contract with them and now um, now it's gone bigger and better. It's, it's, it's like the big whale, you know, eating the, the little... <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. They're long, they're long contracts, right? It takes like 20 years for something like that to come to maturity. Mm, and mm. Um, so we'll see. But, you know, when I when I left the Navy, I was in the Army as well. And same sort of thing, you know, you I always wanted to run around with a gun and kick in a door and um, and and get into a gunfight and do all those sorts of things as you do as a, as a young young man that might be seem seem strange to people listening to that why would you ever want to do that but that mm. was what i was wanting to do i wanted to train for that and i was lucky enough i joined i joined the army after i got out of the navy and i couldn't do it in a service transfer they wouldn't let me do that at the time and i went to recruit school then i went to the school of infantry and then i joined 3RAR the week that they were going to east timor which at the time was the biggest conflict that we were going to go to since the vietnam war so the Australian Army hadn't been deployed like that at scale mm. since Vietnam. And it was 
like a really kind of exciting time. So three hour out went across and I went in, for, in the first Rio cycle about four or five days later when I joined my, my platoon and my section and stuff like that. And um, it was a, it was kind of like I described like being conscripted. Hmm. And I remember my dad um, is of the age of Vietnam. He, he missed the draft luckily. So he never went to Vietnam and he never volunteered for that. But I, I remember, you know, back in the day, they would go to recruit school, school of infantry and send you straight on ops. And I'd been in the army a total of literally a total of 14 weeks. And oh, there how, I was, how old were you then, Rob? I was 20. I was a bit older, right? So I'd been in the Navy yeah. for five years. So I was 20, 22 when I got out of the Navy. And then mm. I was probably about six months in between. Yeah, it would have been, I would have been 23. Yeah, yeah, 23, because it was the mm. year 2000, right? So mm. um, 99, 2000. So I was 22, 23. And yeah, it was, uh, it was a crazy experience because I went from the School of Infantry where they're doing these briefings. And then literally a couple of weeks later, we're doing exactly the same briefings that I learned in training. But this time I've got like frontline ammunition with me and my mm. webbing's tooled up with seven magazines. You know, I've got a 66 millimeter rocket with me. I've got like two hand grenades. I've got all the stuff. I've got a sidearm and everything like that. And it's like, geez, you know, I hope I don't have to run anywhere anytime <laughs> fast. You know, I'm not as fit as I, I'm only half as good as what I think I am. That's sort yeah, of it looks, it looks cool on the movies and when, when you like that, but then when you actually got all that gear on trying to run, it's amazing how, you know, hard, man. you really got to sort of like, Oh, hang on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but when I, when I think back to those times, you know, you, your body doesn't remember the heartache that you go through. You just know that those things were hard and it were difficult times. But one saying that I used to have for myself was that the only easy day was yesterday. Um, and, and I often think that I often think that that has been true in the last 18 months with this pandemic, that you got to take one day at, at a time. And really the only easy day was yesterday. Was that yep. true for you? Yep. yep. That, well, hundred percent. Cause I remember, when, when when there was only about 20 of us in the group and the, the boss would say, look, we never catch that elevator, you know, up and down. That's lazy because you've got to set the example of everybody else when we moved across from a, a secret location when Russell Street bomb went off to, to, to the mainstream and we're in the floor there, but we had to always run up and down the stairs. So carrying kit, uh, carrying your gear, going up and down the whole time and, you know, we're chatting as we're doing all that. And I remember going back, a few years later when I got out of the force and um, went to go up the stairs and I went, geez, when were the, when, since when are these stairs? So Nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, you know, we were going up 10 flights or something all the time and, and, and just like you're just walking on the flat. Yeah. So you just, you know, you don't realise how fit and you, you're right, you don't think about that type of thing and you know, until later on when you sort of look back and you go, gosh, did we do that? No, fast roping down the um, the coils of the elevator shaft where you just locked down the bottom and just got up at the top and opened up the doors and just did that down without any mm. safety gear, just to, you know, defeating your hands just just for for practice because you were bored, you know, waiting for something. It's, you know, dang- it's, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous job, eh? Hmm. Oh, definitely. Did you ever get uh, hurt? Um. Yeah, I, d- I did. I got hurt. I never got shot, shot, shot at, but not shot. But um, hurt as in when we used to do the airborne repelling um, and sometimes we'd have um, some, some, some crooks that, you know, the CIB would check and, and it was at the farm and they'd, they'd know if somebody was coming, but we had to just chop her in and then, you know, fast rope out of the chopper, you know, onto the roof or onto the ground and then, and then off again. But if everybody goes out even, it's great. But if one goes out 
and it's it's a bit uneven. It's amazing how they they'd have a lever, the, the chopper pilot, just to pull it so that it loosens all the ropes so you just fall mm. down. And I remember one time we did that. Um, you know, I end up landing awkwardly on one of my mates who landed on the ground, and he had, he did his neck, and he was running across into the storm, the, the house like this, and I was sort of limping along. But I, I remember, you know, hitting the ground, and my Achilles heels really smashed down. And and then for years later, I, I always had inflamed Achilles. It was you know it'd get better and 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 be on and off. Even to today, it's on and off. You know, at the moment, you know, knock on wood. Uh, it's 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 fine, but for a long while there, that, that that was the main one. What about yourself? Did you did you experience any injuries? Anything to do with aeroplanes and helicopters in any sort of government job involves injuries, right? Um, but I, I was really lucky when I was when I marched out of the parachute school and I left the army. I remember the day I was marching out, and you know you go walking around getting everybody's signature, saying goodbye to everybody, and collecting all your stuff. This guy stopped me and he goes, "Hey, how much money did you get?" I was like, what? This is my last day in the army. What money? Really? This is my last chance. And he goes, how much combo did you get? I said, for what? And he goes, you must be broken after all the jumping and the parachuting you've done. And I was like, no, I, I actually came out unscathed, you know, like I touched mm, myself and I'm mm. like, no, I'm, I'm good. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, oh man, I'm going to bust it back my knee. I need an ankle reconstruction and blah, blah, blah. He had all of these injuries. And he said, oh, it was worth a whole bunch of money for workers comp and they wouldn't let him leave the army until they'd operated on him and fixed him and he was 100% right and I was like oh no that definitely didn't happen to me and yeah, you're robust mate you're like yeah you're robust that's why. lucky lucky these days I uh I know when a storm is coming because the uh, the port side hinge joint in my knee is like getting a little bit like sticky and I'm like <laughs> and I swear that that's like a, an old parachute injury but no it's not it's because you're a fat bastard you just if you lose a bit of like weight your knee won't hurt <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah, we had we had a guy that um, had a motorbike accident, and he had a metal plate put in his leg, and that always came in handy when we had boom gates and we were going through areas, and we didn't know how to do it. So we'd go, "Okay, mate, you know, had <laughs> to go," and he'd go and kneel down <laughs> where the metal plate was. It'd be a magnetic to get the boom gate up, and then all of a sudden back in, and then <laughs> we'd go through. So it was it was a hundred percent true story that one. And I remember also um, there was uh, some escapees down here that went um, went bush, and uh, you know one of my mates was was hunting. I won't mention his name. Was 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 part of the crew, and anyway he, he got shot at, and it actually hit his leg, and uh, he got a bit of a wound on it. But the water, the river was freezing cold, so he sort of thought it was. But later on he realised, and he was can, coming to me and complaining. He goes, look, I just asked the boss if I could have a few days off because of that. And he said, what are you talking about? Like, we've got, <laughs> we've got, we've got other things to do tomorrow. We've got this, this and that. It was sort of like that mindset. Yeah. You know, if you said to a, what I call a normal civilian out here now, mm. and that happened, you know, they'd be off for months and compo and that. But it was sort of like, well, if you're going to complain, guess what? Someone else will do your job. There's stacks of people out here wanting to get in this special operations group. There's 20 yeah. of you. So if you don't do it, someone else will. And, and that was the saying they used to do. And I don't want anyone else to, you know, we, we, we're cool, boss. And he just kept on working. He still talks about it today. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't even able to have a day off. Yeah, so, yeah. But that was back then, you know, that was um, cowboy days. I, I was always acutely aware of um, how lucky I was in, in the military. And I just with the timings that I had and the postings that I had and the, and the trips that I went on, I was really lucky in that sense because... Um, I can remember um, being at the parachute school in my last posting there and 
come to the work one day saying, hey, boss, what, what are we doing today? And he goes, what do you think we're doing, you idiot? We're at the parachute school, get a parachute, let's go out to the DZ and go jump it. And I was like, yeah, that's actually pretty cool, right? And you'd go out there and jump four, five, six times a day, sometimes at nighttime and doing all sorts of really good stuff. And yeah, it was never lost on me how lucky I was to, to be there. I got to do all the SF stuff without having to be in SF and dealing with any of that um, heartache that they deal with. You know, uh, I don't think well, I would have cut it anyway, to be honest. What well, 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 question for you there is um, I remember when we used to do the forward repelling off buildings and you would do it day after day and you think that the more you did, the easier it got. But I remember one time we are just doing it over and over and over and you're tying your own rope up up top of the building and leaning forward and then just straight down, straight down or backwards and forwards. But then it got to the stage we were doing that. We got we got a little bit of the jitters, a couple of us, mm. for, for, you know, because all of a sudden it was like, oh, hang on, because, you know, it started raining and and, and and you're looking at the ropes and somebody might have mentioned, well, you know, that's only got a certain amount of jumps you can do. And <laughs> it's at the edge there, uh, Flipper, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know we reckon yeah. it's only about another two. And then you, you got this, like, little bit of a jitters, you know, like a golfer would do when they're putting. Yeah. Did you ever find that that happened to you with the, you know, with your parachuting? Oh my God, every single time. If, if anyone ever tells you that they're not scared of skydiving or jumping, they are lying to you. Um, mm. Even the most experienced guys, you learn to get that under control because you know exactly what's actually going to happen. But depends on what sort of airplane you're in as well, right? If you're in a, um, in a big cargo plane and the, and the ramp comes down or the door comes up, or if you're in a little civilian plane and you're, and you're you know, huddled into a little Cessna 182 or something like that, it's always a different experience every single time. I can remember we um, every now and then some of the wives and families and stuff would come out to the drop zone and hang out with us for the day. And this woman came out. She was the uh, – someone was away and it was the wife of a woman who was away. And she'd come out to the DZ today, hang out with us, have lunch with us and do that. Mm. And she thought we were the coolest guys ever, right, just jumping all day and coming in with our parachutes over our shoulders, packing our gear and going again. And she's like, oh, man, it's so cool. You guys are so cool. It's everything. And then um, one of the – uh, one of the warrant officers said, hey, why don't we, uh, why don't we take you up? We'll take you up for a tandem and uh, we'll go. And she's like, oh, my God. It was like the most exciting thing in the world for this girl. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was really cool that we were able to do that for her. And anyway, we rigged her up and I got in the plane with her and we we're in a, in a small little Cessna. And I was sitting next to her and the tandem instructor was sitting behind her, of course, and she's hooked in. And if you've ever been skydiving in a small plane, it's like, the slow boat to China to try and get to altitude, right? It flies around and around in circles, like feels like for hours, um, but it's probably only about 20 minutes, right? But anyway, as we were getting higher and higher, you can't really see out the window because you've got to kind of look like that. You got to crane your head and um, she's looking and all of a sudden she's like just turned as white as a sheet, man. And like all that smile went away and she was just like <laughs> crapping herself. And I, I looked and I thought, oh, what's wrong? Is there something wrong? And it just, to your point, you know, like it just planted something in my mind, like, and I couldn't hear her. You can't hear anything in the plane, right? Get your hearing protection in and get your helmet on and stuff. And I was thinking, well, what's wrong? And then I'm like starting to get a bit like, is everything okay? Is my gear okay? I'm like touching my cutaway pads and I'm touching my handle and I'm like making sure my, the BOC hasn't come out of the bottom of, of my rig. And I'm like making sure my harness is on properly tighten them. I'm like, what? And then we get up to altitude, the door comes up, the lights come on and that'll kind of, goes away but you know as i get to the door i looked at it i remember looking at her like that as i got to the door and i like just nodded at her and out i went and she got on the ground 
got on the ground and I helped them when they came in. I remember helping them yeah, and yeah. I stood her up and got her out of the harness and that and I high-fived her and I helped her back in to the hangar. She got out of the rig, got a handbag, got in the car and got out of there. <laughs> <laughs> it was it's the funniest thing yeah. ever. Yeah, yeah. It, it's true. You know, when, when people say that, you know, you, you can tell, especially when they're, oh, I'll do that with the fast roving on top, you know, whatever, 20 stories high. But as soon as they get there and look over, it's amazing how many just go, nut nah, I'm yeah. back. You I know, think I've straight said, that. Away and you sort I think of go I've said like, that exact thing. I've got to the yeah. edge of the ramp and went, no way, what am I doing? Get out. <laughs> Someone pushes you, you get out. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's gosh. pretty funny. Do you, do you have uh, some funny, some memories of funny things that happened to you in the car? Oh, yeah. Yeah, look, um, the, the, the funniest one that I remember, and it may not be funny for a lot of people out there, but... Um, a couple of us got Bandiana bomb trained. So it's part of inside the special operations group. You had to go out and, you know, check suspect packages, you know, basically as a bomb um, disposal expert. And so you'd have a, a four-wheel drive with all the, you know, the gear in it. And part of the gear is that you've got a bomb suit that you would put on and you'd have a helmet on and, you know, the Kevlar and, and, and over the legs. And it was, it was pretty awkward to walk around in. And you'd have a little air conditioning done on a hot day that didn't fog up your visor and, you know, uh, on cold days that it wouldn't steam up if you're breathing. But um, you, you were trained that every time you went over a, a suspected bomb or a package that you'd have to put that on, uh, go over it, check it, and you'd get this little X-ray machine that um, you would you would put next to it and then you'd look around and go, oh, this would probably go through that, you know, bo- paper box or metal or suitcase, wherever it is. You'd go away and take a photo, come back. The less time you spend over to the target, the better, which is our motto, time over target, right? Mm. So, yeah, and then you get back and you x-ray it and look at it, and, oh, no, I've got to go and do that again. That's That was the procedure. Sometimes you do it four or five times until you got an x-ray of what's in it and whether it's some kid's lunch or whether mm. it's a few wires and a couple of little bits and pieces, and oh, that doesn't look too good. Um, anyway, we got a call out that McDonald's in Dandenong down here in Melbourne um, had, a, had a car that looked like it had uh, some explosives in it. And, you know, there was obviously uh, police around and there was a big cordon around the area. So I got the call and I had to pick up my mate Scoey, right, who's, who's a scallywag that was in my, my good mates who was in the um, SOG at the time. And um, so I've sort of gone now. Didn't have, we, we had that bomb kit in the, in the back and different things, but obviously the 2IC because he was in charge of that to, to, to do that bit. So I had the bomb truck, so I'm driving out to pick him up to go to Dandenong. And I picked him up and he goes, we've got to go. And I said, what? He goes, just get there. And so, so I'm flying air bells and whistles and things like that. Because normally I go, but in my mind, but we've been told not to rush ever to Because if it's going to go <laughs> off, we don't want to be there, right? And don't get there at o'clock or half past. Or, you know, get there yeah. at 17. No, one, <laughs> no <laughs> one's setting it off at that time. Yeah. At that time. So um, we're flying there now. And then when we get out, you, you normally just open up the back of the four-wheel drive and put the bomb suit on and get everything done and get the extra equipment. But he's just flown out of the car and just, there was a little box outside the car and he's got his Hunter 5 knife and he's and he looked at it and he goes, oh, you know, and then all of a sudden he's gone to the car. Normally with the car, you, you put little wires and, you know, bits of to pick the locks and the bonnets and things and you take your time and you go around a corner with, with some sort of pole there to leverage it and do all that, which takes a while. Mm. But he's just gone smash with a rock through the window, looked through it all, said, yep, that's fine. 
And the <laughs> inspector in charge goes, you blokes are heroes. He goes, I've never seen things so fast before, right? <laughs> and I'm looking and thinking, mate, we don't normally do that. But We're going to get blown Scully's up. on a mission. <laughs> and Edison goes, look, I've got time to talk. Scully goes, we're going to go. So he gets in the car and we just he goes, go home. Anyway, we're driving along, we're flying along, and I said, Scully, um, what was the what? Like, it's a rush. You're in a rush. He goes, oh, you don't understand. My girlfriend, Caff's ringing me from the States at 6 o'clock, and if I'm not home, she'll kill me. <laughs> but it goes to say it was so, it was so blasé about yeah. that, that we'd been doing it that often, or he had, that, it, that was just like a normal job of someone going in and, and being an accountant and, and, and doing someone's tax return. Yeah, you, you know, get that, desensitized to what oh, you have to yeah. deal with on a daily basis. Hey, it's weird. Yeah, I know, but I mean, like, yeah, we had to rush because she'll kill me. But yeah, forget about the bomb. You just, you know, all the suspect <laughs> baggage that could have been there, or, or the car and putting the bomb suit on. But yeah, no, that that's. What about you, mate? You got a, you got a funny story? Yeah, I, I got some funny navy stories actually. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I can I can remember we stopped in just off the coast here of Sydney uh, one winter time. I've been in many of the oceans around planet Earth and. Still to this day, the biggest oceans I've ever been in are just out here in the Tasman Sea between Australia and New Zealand. In wintertime, you get the southerly groundswell coming up from Antarctica and some of the waves, man. You know, I've been in Category 5 cyclones before doing search and rescues, but the waves have got nothing on the mm. waves out here in Sydney in wintertime off the East Australian exercise area. Remember one time the swells probably... 25 meters guided missile mm. frigate is is high right the radar thing and the ship kind of crashes down through the waves but it doesn't come back up fast enough to get over the next one so the wave just kind of crashes over the top and the water is like coming over the top of the bridge you can't you have to dog down the doors so the water doesn't get inside the bridge and just think of a ship any ship you know that you're standing next to you look up at it and the, the waves are higher than that and oh. even halfway up the mast sort of thing it's just incredible and uh one time i i hear this Man overboard, man overboard. <laughs> I'm like, what? Really? And when you recover on a warship, you recover man overboard one of three ways, with a swimmer, with a boat, or with a helicopter. And I'm like, there's no way they launched the helicopter in that. Couldn't get it out of the hangar. There's no way they'd launched the boat in that. Able Seaman Russ, dive store. And then I'm like, <laughs> what? Because <laughs> I was the I was one of the ship's divers, right? And I'm on watch. I'm like, what? And everyone's like, ah, to be a ship's diver now. Ah. Hey? So what they do is they huck the they huck the dummy off the side of the ship, right? And the ship just does a, a big three a big three sixty. Yeah. So it does a so imagine you're you're going north and the dummy gets chucked off the side of the ship. We just do a, a whole big circle around and the ship pulls up alongside it. Yeah. So it's all the training that we do, the officer watches Which there. Take a while to, yeah. No, no, it's fast. It, the, the, it comes around quickly, maybe. Yeah. By the time I ran down to the back of the ship, got my wetsuit and my fins and my mask, run to the forecastle, we're alongside of it. But the ship is pointing into the swell, and the swell's like 15 meters, not waves, like swell. And they're like, right out, in the water, go. I'm like, really? And as the, as the ship comes up out of the water like that, the drop is like, 25 meters mm. so you know time as a ship comes down the drop is about like four meters and then phew, jump in the water when there's like a four meter drop and what you do is you lie on your back and you, you swim on your back and they, they're kind of pointing and i'm swimming along and like there's the dummy i hit my head on it and i turn around and um i remember turning around and pulling the thing and then the swell just pulling me i don't know if you've ever seen that movie the perfect storm Yes. Right, at, right oh. at the very end, George yep. Clooney's in the water. They're all in the water and stuff. And it was like, it's like that. And 
Um, just the, <laughs> that you know, was huge. Oh, man, the, the, the wind, you know, it's blowing like 80, 90 kilometers an hour and the, the water is freezing in the middle of wintertime. I'm like, all right, the, the, like I'm wearing a helicopter strop. I'm wearing one and, the, and I take one off and put it on the dummy and I'm like, give them the thumbs up. And then there's about 20 people on the folks who are pulling the dummy in. They pull it all the way up and now they're pulling me in. And as they go to pull me in, the, the ship comes out of the water. And as the ship comes out of the water, I'm alongside of it. I kind of get sucked underneath it as it comes out. But then as the ship comes down and pushes all the water away, I get like spat out. And I'm like, Ugh. and I have to time. So I remember coming right next to it and the ship came out of the water. I could see the sonar dome. I'm thinking, what the hell? And I'm like getting sucked underneath the ship. And I'm just thinking to myself, how do I end up in these situations, man? Like, oh, what the hell? And I get spat back out like that and they're like righto rob we're gonna have to time it we're gonna have to time it you ready and i'm like yeah no shit man we're gonna have to time you don't have to time anything yeah i'm the one timing it i'll say when to pull and then they're pulling like and i'm not ready for them to pull because they're just pulling you out of the water right with the, with the helicopter strop and uh anyway after probably five or six goes of nearly being sucked under the warship and hammered by the sonar dome oh. on the front of it and then getting getting spat out like I don't know if you've ever been dumped in the surf before, but this is the biggest dumping of your life when the warship hits down and then spits all the water out over the side. Anyway, must have taken 20 minutes to get me out of the water. I got out, got up, took my mask off, took my fins off and got all the all stuff like that. And everyone was packing up all the gear and the captain's on the top of the bridge just going, you are crazy. I said, well, what are you doing, man? Launch the boat next time. <laughs> Not me. You're the one that's yeah, all the helicopter in the stuff. I know you got all this equipment and you put a person in the water. What's wrong oh with you, man? no, oh, oh mate. And people out there listening are probably thinking, mate, near your funny stories. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny because you find yourself in these circumstances that you could never possibly imagine. Mm, mm. You're just like really added this and the only thing you could do is just kind of like laugh about it because if you look at the seriousness of it you'll be like i'm about to die you're not gonna <laughs> die it's all right man it's just just laugh at it just smile and wave it'll be okay you'll get you'll get through it it's all good i don't know that's good stuff i i, I miss the camaraderie i miss my mates i miss all that do you miss that mm. yeah i was just i was just about to ask you that one too I, look i um must admit that you know when i get asked you know do you miss it and uh, the answer is yes the camaraderie with, with the boys back then, you go through life and death situations, you go through fatal shootings, you go through, as I said, um, you know, raids and different things, which is all the big things that happened in Melbourne at the time. It was, it was seemed to be happening every week. And you're going through it together as a team and it's life and death. And you've got to really rely on, you know, your mate. And then afterwards, when you're having a few beers outside going out in the city in the, in the police club or the nightclub or wherever you are, it's amazing how you bond, you, you laugh and you, you're having fun and, and you just want it to go on forever and you, you don't even think about money that you're going to get, but you do, you get paid all the time from, from the government. But that, <laughs> that just happens, but, but you're just having, fun, you know, like it's like having fun every single day, but it's the biggest fun in the world, you know, one minute you've you got someone with a hostage seat situation to, to all that and, and, and the boys you're with, is great and getting up every day and not knowing what's going to happen for the day. It's not boring, you mm. know, and uh, driving along and just thinking, well, you know, this, this is fantastic, you know, and you think it goes on forever. You know, if I could, I'd be back there tomorrow, 
Um, but the thing is, is that you're not as fit and you're not as wild. You couldn't make, it, couldn't as, make it up the stairs, pal. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I have to do some extra training, Rob. those sprints. <laughs> I can get up the stairs. I just can't do it again tomorrow. <laughs> and what about you? Do you miss um, paramilitary and um, Tom? I, I do. Yeah, I definitely do. I was listening to a Jocko podcast this morning and the guy on there was a, um, a Huey pilot in Vietnam and he was talking about some of the uh, some of the operations that he did and uh, these really big air insertions, these air cavalry mm. insertions mm. In, uh, into Laos and stuff. And a couple of times they, in this one particular thing, he was talking about how two aircraft were shot down and his machine was shot up like 40 something times and he came back, he got back and got back to the brief and the skipper said, Hey, can you go back out? And he goes, yeah, I'll go back out, but I don't have an aircraft. And the skipper said, take mine. And he went back out and he picked up the guys who had, uh, who had speared in, who'd got shot down and they were all alive and he picked them all up. And when they, when they came back and that day was finished, the, there was a general there and he said, guys, I want you to go and have a little break. So take an aircraft and, go down there and go and have yourself a couple of beers and have a few hours off. Um, and he was recounting this story and he kind of had a, a quivering in his voice and he was like happy memories of these things, but mm. such traumatic events. And mm. he, he kind of recovered himself in this interview and he was saying that the esprit de corps that you have mm. when you're in such difficult circumstances is not like anything. And when you look at the amount of time that you spend on an operation doing that in the scheme of your life, it's like nothing. He was in Vietnam for 12 months between 1970 and 1971. It's just mm. a very short time in his whole life. He's like 85 years old or something like that. But those memories and that esprit de corps that you have with the men that you serve with like that stays with you forever. Yep. Um, and I, I think that all, all young people should have an opportunity to experience that in some way. And many, many young people do. You get to experience that in a sports team, in a, um, in a really good, solid working environment. If you've ever been in one of the, you don't have to be in the military to experience all of that. But mm-hmm. I think we've all had a version of that. And it's always, once you've had that version, it's always something that you want to get back to. And it's something that you're like, oh man, this place is never as good as the the last one and it's not yeah, quite there. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I know. That, that, when, when you said that, it was like um, there was always intakes, like intake one of the SOG, the first one ever, right up to, you know, I did intake um, 11 back then, you know, and now it's up to intake probably 80, 90 or whatever it is, you know, but we're always sort of saying, oh, but it wasn't as hard as when we did it because we had to do <laughs> that 33.3K run in our GP boots with the shotgun above their head with one bottle of water mm. and we had to do it in a certain time whereas they cut that out because they reckon it was dangerous on your knees and all that. Now you guys have got to, to do your, you know, you're carrying your dead body or your log over terrain for 5Ks in runners, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have it in my side. So my day. <laughs> yeah, and, and they, they – um, I, 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 a son of one of the bosses that was in there wrote a book inside the secret world of the special operations group um, just recently. And it was back in our time when I was in it with a lot of the stories and the jobs that were in there. And it was really well written of, 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 from, from the position of us inside doing the job for what was going on in their minds and what was saying and all the funny, most of them are funny stories, all fatal shooting jobs. And um, when there was the book launch, you know, we were invited, just the group, and I hadn't seen those guys from way back when I left, none of them. But it was like mm. we never never left and, yeah. and we all got on well and, you know, our partners all got on well and it was sort of like a, 
you know, as you're having the beer as a cigarette, not about remember the time you know. <laughs> do, do you have the catch ups or um, again, especially with the elite crew? Not not so much. Uh, more, I'm connected with virtually everybody I serve with in Facebook, actually. Um, so I'll see them all the time and I chat with them all the time there, which is, is really nice. Um, so I, I like that a lot, but physically catch ups, everyone's kind of displaced from yeah. all parts of Australia. You know, most, a lot of people down in Victoria, I'm in New South Wales, some in Queensland, some in Tasmania, some in WA. So mm. that's kind of a little bit tricky like that, but you're quite right. You know, you can not talk to these people for months at a time, sometimes years at a time and you reconnect with them. Like they're your best buddies and like yeah. your brothers and your sisters just from yesterday, which is really nice. It's a, it's one of those things that I definitely do, do miss like that. What about transitioning out? I, I, I got out way too early. Personally, mm. I should have stayed mm. another four or five years. I wasn't ready to leave my job. And I know that because I got out in 2002 after Afghanistan had just kicked yeah. off and Iraq was going on and whatnot. And um, I was seeing, I got it. I remember getting out and, and turning the TV on and seeing my mates over in Iraq and some of my mates in Afghanistan. And there was a bunch of them rotating back and forth and doing a few different tours and things like that. And I was kind of, I don't want to say it, but I almost got back in and I, almost wanted to do those things. But then I had really small kids at the time as well. You know, my children were really young. And it's like, mm. and then um, Andrew Russell, Sergeant Andrew Russell was killed. Um, he was the first Australian soldier killed in Afghanistan. His vehicle drove over an IED and Andy was my parachute instructor. Mm. And so that like kind of hit home to me as an airborne guy, he was an SAS guy. And I, and I remember seeing that and thinking, Oh my God, that's my parachute instructor. Mm. I, I spent like three solid weeks with that guy going through training and chatting with the guy and he's a, just a normal, regular dude and mm. Mm. drove over a landmine and was killed, unfortunately. And I remember my missus at the time saying, well, you know, what would, what would you do if that was you? And you got these small kids and he had a young daughter at the time that he never knew and tragic circumstances. So transitioning for me probably took about five years by the time I realized that I didn't have to be, you know, five minutes early to everything all the time with my shoes properly done and the right hat on and the right clothes on and all of those things. Like it took a, a while to demilitarize Rob, mm, mm. but I kept, I kept all of those traits. I kept all of those things that were good and that served me, but a lot of it didn't serve me for a long time. And I was always a little bit kind of lost because I don't know about you, but for me, I define myself by that beret that I wore and mm, that mm. uniform that I wore and the job that I I, I loved, but I'd had enough of, and mm. it's very hard to go and try and find yourself as a 30 year old man when you've pretty much ticked every box you want to tick in your life as well. That's, that's a really hard, was it hard for you? Uh, yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Look, I, I, I would, I'd still be in there. I was in there for life. I loved it. Um, I was in there for a long time. A lot of uh, mates came and go intakes where, where new guys are coming in and it was, was, was fantastic because, it was sort of like a thrill, you know, and I was a risk taker. Uh, but I didn't have any kids. And uh, anyway, I got to the stage where one time there was um, a job on that um, was a fatal shooting on and one of my mates um, I was told to look after because when somebody had, you know, fatally shot someone, you have to look after them because they go for a range of emotions afterwards and, uh, you know, they could fall into a hole for three days or they could be um, on a high and, and, and drop or they could be just <laughs> normal, mm. which was probably like a few of them. But, um, you know, and then and then encourage us to go out and, and, and drink the night. So we went out and had a whole load of drinks and I was uh, helping a mate out that was, was part of that 
um, shooting. And I remember helping him to his car <laughs> and he was driving home. And you wouldn't do that these days. because Yeah, you couldn't do that these days. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? Like back then you'd be sort of like, ah, oh, I'm right, officer. I'm in the, I'm in the group and mm-hmm. see you later and driving off. But um, as I was walking back, I saw a, a taxi driver being kicked um, by a grand gang of a uh, couple of guys and, and girls on the ground. So I went over to help. And in that time, you know, it was like just I, I pulled the handgun out. It's, it's well documented this and just said, run or you die, <laughs> which was better than Arnold Schwarzenegger's I'll be back. <laughs> and and uh, and they all ran off, you know. And I remember one running one guy and I thought, geez, he's, he's just ran out of his shoes, you know. He just ran so fast. Then I just sort of put it back and went to bed and, well, the next day all hell broke loose and, you know, I was, I was marched into the to the boss and said, look, you know, you got to go and have an interview with internal affairs back then. And um, so I explained what happened. And um, with that, I got suspended from the SOG, but I was allowed to go anywhere else in the in the police force. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, brought the people in, apologised and did this and the whole, whole stuff. Um, but back then it was sort of like <laughs> you, you just got a smack on the wrist and off you went. Mm. But I, I, I was thinking maybe search and rescue, maybe... Maybe um, maybe homicide squad, maybe this and that. But in the end of the day, it wasn't the anti-terrorist group. It wasn't terrorist. Not what you wanted person, to do. Air, land, and sea. It wasn't mm. it? Wasn't you know going with the Wall Street shootings and the, and the Russell Street bombings and and all the big things that were happening. And so I looked and I went, Do I really want to go anywhere else and not being able to go back? And I said to the I said to the boss. How far, how far is the door shut? He goes, oh, man, it's only half an inch open, you know. Mm. It's nearly shut because there was a lot of, you know, over years, you, there's always something that's, that's you know, that, that's the public don't like, you know. Um, I remember when my, my sergeant in charge of the team of four, you know, there was there was uh, four of us with one team sergeant, so attack team one. And uh, he used to say um, after there was a fatal shooting one time, the coroner's court, you know, the question was asked through, you know, one of the uh, lawyers there, look, how is it that your Melbourne SOG in one year has shot more dead than the whole New South Wales police force in 10? And his answer was, because we're better shots. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 the, the way it was like that, it was really becoming, it was unravelling, you know. Now it's yeah. really watertight, the whole thing. Mm. So, um. So yeah, so I decided. Look, I don't want to go anywhere else. So I, I I I left the force, and then I was like you. I was lost. I, you know, there's there's not many jobs out there for ex anti terrorist bomb squad type guys out there. Door kickers, know? yeah. yeah. Um, so I ended up debriefing my whole self, unbeknownst to me, because I thought I'll give acting a try. So I went and did a um, a beginners and an intermediate and advanced course of of acting, and I was mixing with. Joe Blow and Mary and Bob are working down the supermarket and, you know, and, and mixing with normal people and, and having fun doing acting theatre and, and stories and going into a bit of, you know, a couple of little TV shows. And it was so relaxed and, and did that and did that for about a year. You know, did a few commercials and things. And unbeknownst to me, after that year, I, I must have reset myself and I was able to cope. And a lot of people say, oh, what about the memory of this and that? Yeah. Doesn't worry me. So never bothered you. Yeah. Yeah. No, never bothered me. And, and and I'm, you know, open and honest with everything of what happened because that's what it is. That's what we're having a chat today. So um, and I found, yeah, once I got into that acting, you know, um, and then went out and did some normal work and then found a wife and then had some kids. It was just 
there's old dad, you know. Yeah, there, <laughs> you there know? it is. Yeah, but we, yeah, is. They, I remember the kids. They, we never even told about the experience of what we did. It was just like, oh, dad's, uh, you know, some salesman in some sort of area, you know, what it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's a really really interesting story. It's a a nice progression to hear that as well. I know a lot of people really struggle on the way out the door. And again, I've done a few interviews with a a bunch of footballers and Mm. I can remember asking a couple of, you know, the professional athletes, right. You know, what, what's, what's your favorite thing about not playing football anymore? And they're like, I'm free. Mm. Like, What do you mean you're free? And just think of the the regiment of a professional athlete, right? You've got to eat this. You've got to be at training at this time. You've got to go to this media appearance. You've got to do this. You've got to, you're all, you're just on the clock constantly you're always going to be somewhere and do something and then you've got to perform and to do that it's really you don't have to be in the military or in a government mm. job like the mm. police or anything like that to actually feel those sorts of things but i also think that you need a new mission and that acting thing sounded like a really good mission for yourself and something to aim at some targets to aim at and some things to happen for yourself as well i know when i left the military i got into business um and at the time uh, we needed a website and someone said it will cost you $50,000 in 2002. And I said, we don't have $50,000. Maybe I can figure this out myself. Um, And I started uh, to just to fiddle with that. And over a period of time, people would say to me, Hey, can you do that for me? Hey, can you make me one of those? And before I knew it, I had a job here. I had a job there. I did one here, one there. And so all of a sudden I acquired these skills that I'd trained for myself a little bit like you right you go to the acting mm. course and mm. learn how to do those things and then you become self-reliant on that so i watched a, a bunch of videos asked hang out with a bunch of developers and before i knew it i was in the the digital space and it was kind of a happy accident in many ways but it was never really where i wanted to be my heart was never in it um i always wanted to drive a truck so i never yeah. got a truck license in the military so i went and drove container trucks for a while i really enjoyed that but that's a you know, with the greatest respect, that's a bit of an old man's job. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. like in my thirties doing that job. You rock up at the wharf and the youngest guy out there is like 70. Like, <laughs> what are they doing here? You know, like trying to get away from their wives or something like that. And um, everyone was really cranky. And I thought this is like the coolest job ever, you know, drive around with these big toys and drive around in a big vehicle in the city and, you know, backing the thing up and all that. I really enjoyed the, the man machine connection in there and that as well. But, you know, let, let's transition here, Gaz, to to the crypto side of yep, things. Sure, I, I, sure. I got involved in crypto in 20, uh, 2017. In Bitcoin was around six thousand Australian dollars. Um, prior to that, I'd been doing a whole bunch of trading, day trading, CFDs, forex indexes, all of that sort of stuff. And um, when I first looked at it, I thought, I wonder if you could trade that. And what I discovered really quickly was that it was the wild west, and um, there's all sorts of unregulated things going on. And it's like, well, man, that's like really sketchy. Mm. And mm. one thing that I noticed that was going on there was um, you could buy a token or a coin at one exchange for, say, 20 cents, and you could sell it at another exchange for 25 or 30 cents. And back in the day, they didn't have what we call today price oracles, which would smooth out the price across all the different exchanges. There's no such thing. So I thought, there's a real opportunity there. And you can't do that with normal trading on Forex or shares or stocks or something like that because the mm. share price is the share price, right? Mm. But if I could go over here and buy this instrument for 20 cents and sell it over there for 30 cents, I just made a 10 cent profit. Isn't that the same as if the price rallied 10 cents? I was long in the trade. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And yeah, so I did a lot of, it's called arbitrage trading, right? I did a lot of that trading and 
at the time I, I bought some Bitcoin, held on to it, and the price rallied. Um, it, it, rounded the, it rounded the top and was on the way down, and I sold out on the way down, and I, I clocked a, a pretty handsome profit, which was really nice. But once I, once I cleared out of Bitcoin there in 2017, I sort of um, I just had one eye on it, and I didn't really look much at it. And I got back into it this year and got into it full on. I sort of, mm. all of the clients that I've had in the podcasting and the PR space that I've been working with and the digital clients that I've been working with have sort of uh, finished and I didn't acquire any more because I could go back to that anytime. It's not going anywhere. It's all the same stuff. But I got back into crypto full time and uh, been doing a whole bunch of different things in the last couple of months, which has been really exciting for me. Getting into NFTs at the moment, mm. building, working on a project, building a, a piece of software to help some people with and a uh, whole range of things happening and loving loving it actually i love the detailed technical nature of crypto and the detailed technical nature of DeFi and uh, smart contracts and ethereum and developing and things like that so what about you what's what's been your experience mate yeah look going back um 2013 14 i remember um in the car and i had a young guy in the car that i was training him in home sales at the time and he kept on talking about bitcoin bitcoin and something that was foreign and cryptocurrencies and Satoshi Nakamoto and all this. And I was sort of like, mate, you're just speaking an alien to me. I didn't know yeah. what you were talking about. He says, oh, you got to get onto it, man. You get this big – and he was trying to explain it all to me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, hurry up and, and you learn this. So I thought I'd train him really well in the in, in the sales. Anyway, a couple of days later, um, he said to me, he goes, no, man, he goes, look, not for me. I'm, I'm getting into – the crypto space, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. You know, you got to get into it. He goes, here's my number, look me up. And I never did a thing. I just thought, this guy's talking. But I think it was only like he was talking about, it was only worth like a, about a hundred or a couple hundred bucks at the time or something like that. So, if, only, if only we could turn back time. Oh, right? man, I, I, <laughs> I know. He's a, probably a billionaire now or something yeah. like that. But um, then uh, going back to, I suppose, last year when um, when COVID hit um, pretty hard, um, where I got the experience of getting into the crypto space was, you know, I've got a business outside of that Shadow Warrior. And, and basically Shadow Warrior is that if anyone's got a problem out there, I'll, I'll help them on the side of good rather than evil. So if, let's say, there's um, infidelity um, and, and, and checking out that with, with private, you know, surveillance and things and, you know, recording that to helping people in trouble where their kids are in a, you know, a, a bikey group that they want to get out or some drug heaven or a cult or things like that. And it was exciting and that was my little adrenaline rush. But I was travelling interstate. I was able to go overseas with some jobs. But then when COVID hit, I couldn't travel. Mm. I couldn't go anywhere. People's purse strings just tightened up because they couldn't afford, you know, to pay X amount to go along anymore. And I found myself just basically out of work and so did my my wife and and my kids were, were there and because we we're in industries that we were in lockdown even though that you could and then you say well hang on you're just dipping into your savings and things so a mate of mine um was talking about bitcoin and he was saying you should get yourself into that and i said i remember my son talking about bitcoin and this guy from 2014 so anyway i studied it up a little bit and i bought um uh, half a Bitcoin, so you can buy, the, you know, as you know, the Bitcoin in in some small percentages. You know, you can get 0.1 or 0.2 or different things. And I think it was around about, at that time, about $3,500. So 
So, you know, because the Bitcoin was around about seven or 8,000 at the time. And so I did that and ended up getting a full Bitcoin, but I ended up paying about 10 or 12 grand. Well, it went all the way, this is Australian, went all the way up to over 80,000, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and, then, and then came back down. So we still got some of that. And then my son was telling me about Ethereum and, and, and explained how that was all working. And, and, and so we bought into a bit of Ethereum and a bit of Cardano and Monero. And, you know, then we got into the Tron network and, and basically bought a little bit of that. So, and then now starting to look at these NFTs that you just mentioned. And I found that, um, you know, I love it. I'm excited about it because when you really look at how the world's going, especially with fiat currency around the world and, you know, they're spending like clockwork and how money's made, this is the new future. And so, and I speak to a lot of people like yourself that see that. I mean, is that what you see as well? Oh, man, it's it's just unbelievable, the uptake. You know, nothing in human history has had a higher uptake than cryptocurrency and Mm. by association blockchain tech. It's just incredible what the numbers are you know the the year-on-year growth is around 113 to 130 percent no one knows for sure it's somewhere in that vicinity which means it's exponential which means next year there'll be twice as many and twice Mm. as many and twice as many again like that Mm. so it's incredible how that's happened and this this blockchain space Mm. is the golden age of the internet when you think of something like um, nfts so that's all become all the rage in 2021 here. When you look back at 2017, when you and I were kind of just kicking off this little Bitcoin game and this crypto mm. game that we're mm. getting into, I can remember going out in the city and one of my mates, Michael, introducing me to his friends. I'd never met them before. And he introduced, he said, Rob, meet, meet my friends. I can't remember their names. Meet my friends. They're in the crypto like you. And I said, oh, cool. What are you into? And she showed me her phone and she goes, oh, we've got these crypto kitty things. And I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know what to say. Like, like well, what's that? You know, like who would speculate on that? Who who would buy that? You know, like I understand Bitcoin's a store of value and you, there's mm. all these other coins and tokens and all these other things. But who would like, why are you speculating on that? What? But that in retrospect, when you look back at it, was the genesis of NFTs, of non-fungible tokens. And I was doing some research um, before for another presentation. And I, I looked and I saw in 2017, the NFT market was worth $30 million. That was what the market cap was. The NFT market today, four years later, is worth more than $710 million. Mm, mm. So what that says is there's been more than a 2,000% growth over four years or 500% per year in growth. It's like astronomical. Hmm. When you look at uh, the evolution of DeFi, so decentralized finance with Ethereum and other networks where you can create smart contracts, there's a, uh, there's a website out there and I looked in, the, the market cap of DeFi a year ago was about 19 billion. Today, the market cap is somewhere above 300 billion. So, excuse me, uh-huh. excuse me, let me correct myself there. The market cap is above 90 billion. So the difference between... 19 and 90 is something like a 300% growth rate in mm. one year. It's just a, a massive tri- upward trajectory of where this is going. And so what that says to me is that the, the adoption of these things is happening whether you like it or not. Mm. And I, I kind of look at life and I look at investing and I look at crypto and I think, well, if I can get a, a two times, a three times, a five times return on whatever I put my money into, 
then it's worthwhile spending the time to actually go and investigate what that mm. is. And I take the time to investigate those things. I was looking at a website earlier called Cake DeFi. One, and again, another yeah, one of these, yeah. one of these cool places. And Cake DeFi, you can take some really simple crypto, like some Tether or some Bitcoin or some ETH, and you can put it over there into their pools and stake it, and you're getting like a 63% return on your Tether. So if you've got some lazy dollars sitting around in your bank account, even if you've got- I'm writing that down, man. Yeah, yeah. You've got a, got a thousand bucks sitting in your bank account, go away and turn it into some USDT and send it across there and you'll get a 63% clip. So it's just incredible how this is happening. And I think there's a lot of conditioning that we go through as consumers to think that that's, ah, what a load of rubbish, that must be a scam. But when I, just for fun, open up and Google- Term Deposits Commonwealth Bank, I see that they have a <laughs> special offer in air quotes for 0.35% per annum on balances 5,000 to 2 mil with the interest paid at maturity. Mm. But you could take your same money that you could put there and go and put it into crypto, stake it and get 63% APY or APR. And you're getting that on a daily basis. So hundred percent, you can compound yeah. these these returns that you're getting through these platforms and these systems, and there's just so much out there that is just like, what? Really? Is that really true? Yeah, absolutely, it's true. I'll put some links in the description so you can go and check that out for yourself. But yeah, it absolutely is true, and it's just a, an incredible opportunity. Yeah. Well, what do you think about people who are missing out on the crypto at the moment, or they're, 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 they've sort of not they've heard of it, but they're not really looking at it? You know, what- well, when you look at what's happening in the US, so for a long time, they've been talking about creating an ETF, an exchange traded fund. And when you look at what an ETF is, all it is, is um, trading the, you're not trading the underlying asset. So mm-hmm. the ETF sits on top of whatever the ETF's for. And in, in this case, I'm talking about Bitcoin. So it tracks the price of Bitcoin. So what it does is it gives people the opportunity to get involved in Bitcoin without actually having to hold it. And I, I just scratch my head going, why, would you, why wouldn't you just buy some Bitcoin? Why would you get into an ETF? But when you look at the reason that ETFs exist, they exist because people don't understand the nuances and the complexities of a market. So once the US market uh, brings that to bear and says, yes, we're going to go with the, the Bitcoin ETFs and that's ready to go, I think you'll see huge institutional money pour in to Bitcoin, which will cause the price to rally. Oh, yeah. And when you see people saying, oh, Bitcoin will hit a million dollars and it'll hit $100,000 by the end of the year. If you don't know anything about it, you'd probably be like, oh, what a rubbish. How could something rally like that? What, what could it do? But if you look at the, if you pull back the curtain of what's going on in the industry and what people are looking at, because year on year, without fail, since crypto has existed, it's been the single best investment opportunity that's out there. It's better than property. It's better than shares. It's better than anything else that you can combine. Bitcoin by itself is better than all of those things. Yeah. When you look at the annualized growth of things like that, it's just a really incredible thing. And if you're sitting on the sidelines wondering what to do, what you got to do is talk to people. Mm. And talk to your friends and family because I guarantee you that your friends and family have got some crypto. If you don't have some friends and family, you've got two friends and family right here on this call. Go yes. <laughs> scroll down below and we'll put some links there for you. Come and join the Melbourne side hustle and we'll, we'll help you out there and we'll help you get started on your journey in crypto and that as well, because this is happening with or without you. So this is the opportunity of a generation. I sort of say that you have the chance here 
in the next three to five years to make 10 lifetimes worth of money. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't say that as an income claim or as financial advice or anything like that. But if you position yourself correctly and you're smart with what it is that you do and you surround yourself with people that know what they're doing, mm-hmm. but more than knowing what they're doing, they're actually doing it themselves. So they've got some skin in the game. I mean, you're not just listening to some bullshitter bullshit about something. They've actually got some skin in the game. They get in the results. They can show you the results. Grab their coattails. Grab them. Grab the coattails because that just represents the biggest opportunity of our generation. I don't know, man. What, what do you think about people that don't want to get involved because it's too complicated or it's a scam or it's like, I don't no, understand that. No. Look, I, I, I remember saying to my son when he said, I oh, dad, cryptocurrencies, I said, mate, it's a scam. Just don't worry about it. Look, you put your money in the bank, put it in your superannuation account, go and buy a house that you can live in that's going to, you know, probably double every seven or eight years or whatever it is and, and just do the norm, you know, like the, the old book, The Millionaire Next Door, which is yep. written back in the early 90s. And then all of a sudden he's saying, oh, there's a friend of mine who's on social media and he's a millionaire because he's got two million followers and, and, and they pay him X amount every week to talk about the next soda pop or something. Yeah. You know, this is how social media is. And then all of a sudden, you know, somebody, his mate uh, at school that bought some Bitcoin and some Ethereum, and Ethereum was like a dollar or two that's now up to $4,000. $4, you're mad if you don't, and if you don't learn about it and do, you do your homework first. And as you said, we're here to help you. Anyone yeah. out there um, in the Sydney side hustle, the Melbourne side hustle especially. Um, but I'll give you an example of my wife. Like this, she was she was working at Porter Davis Homes. So it's in display homes when people come along when, when I buy a new home and she was getting that from a, from a wage um, that she was making, which was $80,000 a year base plus she was getting commissions on all the homes she was selling because COVID came in. People mm. couldn't go to the display homes and that went from one month to two months to three months and finally they had to cut a lot of people and she lost her job. You know, they gave her a little payout and things like that. Well, because of crypto and the blockchain, I was able to educate her and set her up that she now has an income stream through crypto that she's she's now equal to more than what the job was that she had. I'm never going back, baby. I'm never going back to that job. No, no, and she just walks (laughs) the dogs and whistles and sings every day and says, look, you know, this is what it is because, you know, you've got got to set it up the smart way. Now, we can surely help you do that. Yeah, I I think that the, the key is to talk to people that are doing it and don't try and figure it out on your own because for everything that you go and Google, you'll see really awesome stuff. But that really awesome stuff will resonate with you and you go, oh, wow, that's cool. And then you Google it a little bit more and then you'll see people slamming it. And then what happens is you just get paralyzed by so much data. And I don't know if this is good or it's bad. Is this up or down? Well, I can't decide. Mm -hmm. The volatility, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you just get stuck and you don't do anything. And there's no excuse not to do something. But... If you're listening to all the white noise out there, I think that that can cause a little bit of grief. So, um, you know, the trick is to speak to people that are in it, that are doing things, that are actually creating that recurring revenue for themselves. They've got an income stream from it. Uh, Find out how they did it. And, you know, you can watch all the videos in the world that'll help you with your education and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to start making some decisions. And uh, the, the key is community. I swear, man, the, the key, you and I have come together because of crypto and just how it is. And we're, it's like we've been mates for years. And um, that community and that 
esprit de corps that we've built together and mm. the communities that we're building around us are just invaluable and it's like mm. a little brains trust as well it's kind of cool it's like it's like being in the paramilitary in the first operations group with your mates all over again with something uh more exciting because we're making some good i just <laughs> thought of it i just thought of a name yeah i just thought of a name for us we maybe we could be the like the crypto militia oh yeah, yeah the crypto Actually, militia. there's something mate, in that crypto militia why yeah. not yeah, yeah, because you know you're an ex-police officer. I'm an ex-digger. Yeah, you know, we're, we're on the good militia. side, but we're going to go be the militia now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, well, the C's in there from Cop and M for the militia. Yeah, yeah, something Crypto in there. Militia. Crypto Crypto militia. militia. All right, mate, we've got to, we got to, we got to write that one down. I'm going to go buy that domain name as soon as I hang up this podcast. <laughs> why not? Why not? Hey guys, uh, let's wrap this one up, man. Thank you cool. so much for joining me here and, and sharing some of your stories. That was a hell of a lot of fun. I know that we're going to do more of these in the uh, in the weeks and months ahead. I'd love to have you back on and, and learn some more about your strategies and tactics as it relates to crypto. And maybe we can do some more of those videos. Would you be up for that? Oh, definitely, hundred percent. I'm there, and, and mate, I loved your stories too. And I know you've got so much more behind that, and, and so have I. So. You know, we've only just touched, <laughs> tipped on the iceberg. Yeah, just scratching the surface. We can say, and it's scratching the surface. But now it's all fun. But look, definitely, we're here to help anyone that wants to, you know, help. Just just yell out. Yeah, sounds great. If people want to connect with you, what would be the best way, guys? Through the Melbourne Side Hustle. So go to the Facebook, um, just search Melbourne Side Hustle, um, and, and we'll invite you in. It's a it's a great group. Um, we have a lot of fun, and you know, especially. <laughs> You and I, we're just like just making sure around. that we're having fun. <laughs> but this is what it's like, and this is what it should be: getting up every day and having fun, you know, and 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 and, and securing your future along the way. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. I love it, man. I'd, I'd echo every single bit of that. Yeah, come on over to the Melbourne Side Hustle Facebook group. Just join us there. Just scroll down and the link will be right there in the show notes so you won't have to go digging around in Google for it. Guys, I always like to give the guests the final word. Have you got a final piece of copper SOG wisdom for us, mate? <laughs> what have you got? Mate, the only ones that come to mind for me is we, we react to the way we've been trained, you know, or mm. I'd rather be tried by 12 men than carried out by six. Which is, yeah. which is, which is basically, you know, look, if you've got something that you want to do out there, you know, give it a try, go out there, give it a crack. We're here, you've got people to help you, you know, otherwise, what, you just go along and limp along through life to death, or do you want to go there skidding along, burnt out, and go, what a ride. Yeah, absolutely, man. I know what one I'm doing and what you're doing as well. So ladies and gentlemen, come and join us and come and have some fun. And you and me, let's get out of here. We'll see you next time, guys. Cheers, mate. See you, mate. See you, buddy.